Well, thank you, Pastor Scott, and what a great honor to be here. Mary and I are thrilled to be here. This is, uh, this is a great honor. It's one of the highlights of the year for us. And uh, it has been after a period of being deprived of uh, being able to be with you because of uh, events over the last couple of years. It makes it all the sweeter to be with you now. And uh, we're just uh, thrilled to be here, thrilled to have the honor of being with you, thrilled to have the honor of preaching the Word and, uh, and being in a place that is so faithful to Christ, to the gospel, uh, and to the Word of God here. Lots going on in the world. This morning, it was announced that Vladimir Putin has put the nuclear arsenal of the, uh, almost by reflex said the Soviet Union, the, uh, of Russia, on high alert. Um, thought of that this morning. I was a, a boy growing up in Florida during the height of the Cold War and the, even the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, then thereafter, I lived 30 miles. Uh, Florida is a very concentrated military territory, partly because of the Cold War. And so I uh, had a strategic uh, air command base about 30 miles to my west and a fighter uh, base in the head of Central Command about 30 miles to my, uh, to my east and uh, then had uh, a proving ground. I, I, I would wake up in the morning with B-52 bombers running practice runs and dropping practice charges and bombs uh, for the proving ground not far behind. I, I uh, w one day woke up and my mother was quite startled. We, we backed up to a pasture and uh, the cows were blue. And it turned out that one of those bombers had dropped a dive bomb, thankfully only a dive bomb, upon some very, very, very curious cows who all of a sudden found themselves blue. But this, this was just a fact of life. This is just part of what's going on. And uh, and we had, uh, we had drills, atomic attack drills, and, uh, and in those drills, the big deal was is that we, we would have to uh, follow a certain regimen. I was in a zone in Florida that was within seven minutes warning maximum. So they said by, uh, by missile attack, there'd be a maximum of seven minutes um, of, of warning. And so we had to get under our desk. When the, when, the, when the alarm went off, we had to get under our desk. And at one point, we had to take this little piece of aluminum foil and put it over our heads, which, you know, basically, if you think about it, was about as effective as, you know, putting foil around a baked potato in an oven. It made, it made no sense whatsoever. But, uh, but I, I do remember the, the seeming futility of that. But I had a thought this morning. And, and, and that thought is this, that if, if that alarm were to go off right now, I want to be under this pulpit. I, I, and uh, this, that's where I want to be. I, if that alarm goes off, that's where I'm going, right under there. I, I hopefully have time to grab Mary and drag, get her under there with me. But, but, but just think of this. If that's true physically, how much more gloriously true is it metaphorically? This being under the pulpit, under the Word of God, what a safe place to be. What a safe place to be in this church because of the faithfulness of your pastor and your pastors and the staff and the the preaching of the Word here. So, it's a great honor for me to be here. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, Matthew chapter 16, the passage that the pastor read, my assignment is to talk about the gathering storm over the church. And, and a lot will be explained about why we use the, the, the phrase, the gathering storm, and uh, and what it means that we need to think about the gathering storm over the church. The entire passage is already read for us. I just want to focus on one particular part of this passage. And, and this is where Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, now one of the things I want to bring up here is just the fact that 
that is one of the most important promises found anywhere in Scripture. It's just, it's just an incredible promise to know that Christ said the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. Now, one of the things we're going to see is that that promise does not mean that Christ's church will not face opposition, will not experience persecution, will not even at times seemingly be driven out of entire territory. But it does mean that in the end, Christ is triumphant in His church, and that nothing that belongs to Christ will ever be lost. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives the same promise, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Of all the Father gives to me, I will lose none of them. Isn't that a great promise? So there's no danger of those who are in Christ being lost. There's no danger of Christ's church eternally being lost. But there are times and seasons when Christ's church is under sustained attack. And when the preaching of the gospel and, 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 and the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth and the very acts of Christian faithfulness can become acts against political regimes. Sometimes church and empire find themselves on a direct collision but let's not start there. Let's start somewhere else. We're talking about the gathering storm. That, that's a title of a recent book I wrote just in the last uh, couple of years it has been published, and it, it's about a lot of the contemporary challenges that we as Christians face. And by the way, those challenges expand and deepen every single day. When you write a book like that, you recognize that, uh, like any book, it's a, it's a snapshot in time. You can't write about things that are not yet on the scene because you just got to say, I'm finishing this book, I'm turning in the manuscript, this is going to press, and what happens after this we'll have to address in the next book. But I chose the title The Gathering Storm because one of my heroes in life has been, since I was 13 years old, Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill is not my theological guide. He is a demonstration of courage on the world scene. He is a demonstration of leadership that is so badly needed. He, he is an example of courage. And, and not only that, the wisdom to call things what they are, to call things by their proper name. Sometimes that is one of the most important acts of courage, to say, this is what we must name this. This is not an extramarital affair. This is adultery. This is not a woman's reproductive health you're talking about. This is murder. Sometimes just using the right words is a consummate act of courage. Winston Churchill was often described as a, as a man out of his time in the 1930s because what he saw happening over and over again was the rise of truths that simply could not be rejected. And he saw the bigger pattern. That's why when he wrote his memoir, The Second World War, having basically in one person had the courage to summon England to fight Nazi Germany and then, and then worked to do whatever was necessary in order to defeat Nazi Germany and save civilization, Winston Churchill wrote that first volume of six volumes on the Second World War, first volume entitled The Gathering Storm, because his whole point was, we saw this coming and you would not see it. It was there for everyone to see, and you denied it. Adolf Hitler takes the Sudetenland, and you say, well, there are lots of German people there, we'll live with that. And eventually, entire nations fell to the Nazi aggression simply because Europe was in denial that this was actually something that would threaten European civilization itself. Winston Churchill was pointing to this, he was pointing to that, like a storm cloud there and a storm cloud here. And then when the storm broke in its full fury, it was almost too late for the West to respond. The gathering storm is 
a metaphor for where we are right now as the church, because all around us we see, we see the storm clouds. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear and we have the wisdom to understand, then we will see we're not looking just at isolated issues here and there. It's not just a series of isolated headlines. It's not just a denial of religious liberty here. It's not just a pastor threatened with legal action there. It, it's not just this particular move and that particular move. It's part of a much larger picture. Speaking about the gathering storm over the church, there's several things I want us to think about. First of all, the church at any given time and place, insofar is, as it is a gospel church, a Bible church, it, 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 is, it is as the individual Christian, it is kept by the power of God. So let me just say, when I come to a church like this, I want to say, I am so thankful for your faithfulness. I'm so thankful, thankful for the, uh, the, the encouragement you give to others. And let me just assure you of that, this church this one church, Grace Church of the Valley, offers encouragement and strength to so many other churches. And I don't want to tell you, you're reproducing, and you're doing that, as I said in the first hour, you're doing that the old-fashioned way, first of all, by having babies. God bless you, that's how we take over. And, uh, you know, we evangelize and, and uh, propagate the species. That's the way we, uh, so we push back against the spirit of the age. We preach the gospel and plant gospel churches and have babies. But it's, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's not just that you're a model. It's also that you are willing, and I know you are because you didn't always have this building. You didn't always have these resources. You were willing to meet when you just had to meet where you could meet, wherever you could gather to meet, with whatever you had to be faithful to Christ. And I'm just exhorting you today as I talk about the gathering storm over the church, don't outgrow that. Don't outgrow your commitment to faithfulness even if you don't have all of this. But in the spirit of Christians throughout all the ages, take this, use this, exploit this for as long as you have it. Preach the gospel until they put you in jail and then preach the gospel in jail. That's the apostolic model. When we talk about the storm clouds and gathering storm over the church, what are we really talking about? Uh, there's a sense in which sometimes Christians can feel set upon when things don't go our way. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about things just not going the way we think they should go. I'm talking about an increased threat to the very existence and freedom of the church, even in our own country. Now, we're not on the front lines so much of this battle, and we ought not to think ourselves that way. With humility, we need to recognize there are Christians in other places of the world, even as there are Christians in other, in other moments in church history who paid a far greater price than anything we paid or anything right now we see ourselves being called upon to pay. There are people, of course, who've been, who've been fed to Christians, who've been fed to lions, brothers and sisters in Christ, who've been burned in, in, in the fire. There have been martyrs for the faith. There are those who've lost everything. I mean, just consider the, 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 that pantheon of Christian faithfulness in a passage like Hebrews 11, where all of a sudden you realize these are people who, who had to live in caves, who wore the skin of animals, who, who were tortured and died for the faith. Yes, I mean, we could be called to that. But let's face it, right now we are in air-conditioned comfort. But we need to be very aware of what's going on around us. One of the things we need to recognize is that there has been a break. 
there has been a break. And we seem to talk about what that break is. So if you go back a certain number of years, you go back a certain number of, uh, of decades even, uh, here in the state of California, things would have looked very different. Do you realize there once was a point when, if, when California was the great engine of evangelism across all of North America? There, 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 there was a time in the lifetime of some of you living when California was considered to be the epicenter of Christian evangelicalism. Uh, there once was a time, even in, the, say, the L.A. Basin, when, uh, when you had the rise of church forms noted by their size and, uh, and, and their visibility that didn't really exist virtually anywhere else uh, in the United States. And then you had the Jesus movement that came here and, and uh, really emerged here. You think about the 1970s and, uh, and, and the development. And you can look at this. And it's a complex picture, to be sure. Let's just say it's a complex picture theologically. So by citing this, we're not saying that we're in full agreement with all these things theologically. We're just saying there once was a time when institutional Christianity appeared to be gaining ground rather than losing ground in California. And something happened. But it's not just California. You are just the laboratory for the rest of us. Thank you. Whatever gets cooked up here doesn't stay here. It moves east pretty fast. And, of course, it's working. I, I tell people the way to understand, and I, I mention this on the briefing very regularly, if you want to understand where you move into greater social liberalism, where you move into greater social progressivism, where you move into greater secularisms, the closer you get to a city, the closer you get to a coast, and the closer you get to a campus. Keep those three C's in mind. If you want to know what are the magnets of liberalism and social, social progressivism in the country, the closer you get to a coast, the closer you get to a city, the closer you get to a campus, the closer you get to that. Which means in, in by, by reversing that, you can figure out that the places least likely to show the first waves of this kind of change are the places that aren't cities, aren't campuses, and aren't coasts. So just think about political map of the United States, what the liberals call or progressives call flyover country. You know, think of a red and blue map, blue on the coast, blue where there's a university, blue where there's a city. I mean, a state like Texas, very red. And I'm not talking politics. I'm just saying, look at the distinction. Look at the distinction that even, even politicians have to recognize. There are blue dots in red states. But you, you look at that and you recognize, okay, that map's changing. The reality is that the direction of the culture is being set by the people on the coast, on the campuses, and in the cities. You know, people in rural America are not producing what is, you know, distributed by Hollywood. The studio is not in Andalusia, Alabama. Or if it is, it's controlled by Hollywood. The, the, the point is that, that all of this is, has led to a vast social change. California is kind of a laboratory for it, has been for a long time. The moral progressivism, the, uh, the sexual revolution, the divorce revolution, uh, all these things actually, uh, and not to mention the LGBTQ revolution, all arriving faster, arriving sooner, arriving more aggressively in California, but, but, not, but it's not just here, it's, it's eventually all around the country. I said there was a break. The break is this. For at least a millennium, that's a very long period of time, for, for, and it's really more like a millennium and a half. So let's say 1,500 years. And remember, from the time of Christ to us now is roughly, just say, 2,000 years. It's a little bit more than that, but we can just say 2,000 years. So 1,500 is three quarters of that 2,000 years. For 1,500 years, 
the church as the church, that is to say institutional Christianity, has been very much at home in Western civilization. And the reason for that is, of course, the flow of history. Eventually, the Roman Empire became Christianized. And for, say, 1,500 years, what we know as Western civilization, the, the civilization that started in Europe was defined by Christianity, and not to say that means it's entirely biblical, but it means to say that the legitimacy of the culture was established in Christianity. The legitimacy of the throne was established by, by Christianity. The claim of the king's authority was established by Christianity. The morality that operated throughout the entire society was based on a biblical morality in the Old and the New Testaments. The, the plausibility of ideas was limited by Christianity. The, the, the explanation for the universe was given by Christianity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Richard Dawkins, the famous a- atheist, would say, it took Darwin to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, which is to say that if you try to be an atheist, and the only way you could explain the world by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it's really hard to be an atheist. It's going to hit some of you about lunchtime. But once you began to have all these different alternative belief systems in the West, everything begins to change. My point is, is that if you think not only of California, but you think of Western civilization, only in the last two centuries is there that break that has taken, pla- taken place. And that, that break, you could call it secularization, with increased numbers of people and societies operating on secular terms. You can think about it in authority. You know, when there is a great moral issue to be debated in this country, who does the debating? Hollywood? College faculties? Look at the protests and look at all the rest of the things going on. Congress? Imagine going into Congress and saying, okay, I want to, make a, I want to, I want to suggest a law that would ban abortion because every single human life is made in God's image. How's that going to work in Congress? these days. The Supreme Court of the United States, and by the way, has the greatest opportunity in a generation, and one that you should be praying about in the Dobbs case. The Supreme Court has the greatest opportunity in a generation to strike down the Roe v. Wade decision. But you know what? Even if that happens, and we pray that happens, pray with me that happens. But if that happens, the Supreme Court will not be saying, we are going to underline what the Bible makes very clear, and that is every single human life is sacred from the moment of conception until natural death. That's not going to happen. We're in a society in which the authority structure has changed to a secular authority structure. We're in a society in which social esteem has changed to where, for instance, the preacher of the Word of God is now not necessarily seen as a as a respected authority in the community. Thankfully, in some communities, that's still true. In other communities, a pastor who actually preaches the Word is considered to be a prophet of hate speech. We're in a very different position. What are these storm clouds? Well, one of them is secularization, one of the things we talked about. We're in a society that is increasingly defining reality in secular, that means non-Christian terms. And we have a society that thinks it now has the intellectual tools to do that. When I mentioned Richard Dawkins and evolution, you know, you can't be an intellectually fulfilled atheist until Darwin. Well, just think of modern academia as at least in part an effort to provide alternative explanations in which you don't need God for anything, for life, for humanity, for morality. And, and, and by the way, there are consequences to all these things. So if, if, if you take God away 
as the moral lawgiver. So, thou shalt and thou shalt not. Then morality becomes nothing more than what the liberals on the campuses call social construction. It's just an agreement amongst us as to what we will call right and wrong. And if morality is just what we call or agree is right and wrong, then we're going to be changing it all the time because we are changing. And furthermore, because human beings, being human beings, and, and this is the whole idea of Marxism, the idea of, behind Marxism is that the key dynamic in society is oppression, and so whatever morality is in place must have been, this is the suspicion of Marxism, and the Marxists would say whatever authority structures exist in society must be an intentional effort to oppress someone. And you say, how does that play out? Well, it plays out this way. So, the moral judgment that homosexuality is wrong in a secular society, that can't be objectively true because there is no divine lawgiver to say that it's sin or wrong. Therefore, a society that says it's wrong is a society that is marked by an attempt to oppress people who are sexual minorities. And thus, a sane, good civilization would seek to undo that oppression of sexual moralities. And thus, and again, what we were talking about in the first hour is that the, the, in, the, in the gathering storm over the family is that what was first initiated as an effort to try to liberate society from, say, the bonds of marriage by no-fault divorce, the linkage between marriage and sex through birth control, and, uh, and, and, and the, the sex, what, what the Bible identifies as sexual sin, now to be considered just orientations and, and, and lifestyles. You, you, the problem is, is if you're going to unravel creation, it doesn't stop where you might want to stop it. Like, for instance, this, L and G don't like T. lesbians and gay. The whole idea of being lesbian or gay is pretty much contradicted by T, transgender, which is why you had the feminists and the transgender revolution just hitting it. You, know, you, 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 you got feminists saying, look, we, the whole idea of female sports was so that females could compete against females without being you know, challenged by the, uh, the, 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 the physicality of males. And, so, and, and the whole idea of females as in female quotas or, 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 or second-wave feminism. It's all based upon we know who women are. And, of course, now you've got, a, you've got a biological male claiming to be a woman who is smashing all the championship records in Ivy League swimming, swimming not as a male but as a woman, even though he was on the same school's male team in 2019. And you see, this is the unraveling. This is, this is the thing. If you're going to unravel, you have to unravel the whole. So what has this got to do with the church? Well, just consider where we are right now, just talking about the things we're talking about right now. If the assumption is that any judgment against that is oppression, then guess what the church is now seen to be? Oppressive. And if morality is no longer a matter of something that is given by God, but is something that is merely chosen or negotiated, then Christians are seen as the people who just decided that this is what we prefer the morality to be. And you'll notice, by the way, just remember as Christians, that is not what we're saying. We're not saying we believe that marriage can only be the union of a male and a, and a, and a female, a man and a woman. 
What we're saying is marriage actually can only be the union of a male and a female, a man and a woman, whether we think that's true or not. That is because it is true before the church. It's true in creation. So as we're thinking about the gathering storm of the church, we have to recognize that our situation, even in Western societies, even in the United States of America, which is still a very privileged uh, position as compared even to other European nations, consider that right now in Finland, in Finland, and uh, just before COVID, I had the honor of having, uh, having dinner in London uh, with the um, immediate past uh, foreign minister of Finland. And... Uh, he was warning of these things that were coming. So in Finland right now, a legislator and a Lutheran pastor are facing criminal charges for saying that homosexuality is a sin. And, and, and by the way, let me just tell you something. There's an awkwardness in talking about these issues as much as we have to talk about them. But there is failure, cowardice, an abdication of the gospel and not talking about them when we have to talk about them. I had a reporter for the Washington Post. I didn't mean to say the name of the paper, but I just did. I had a reporter for the Washington Post called me early in the morning one morning. I did not call the reporter. The reporter called me. That's the way it works. The reporter asked me question one. It was about homosexuality. He asked me question two, which is about homosexuality. He asked me question three, which is about homosexuality. And then the reporter said, why is it every time I talk to you, this is what you want to talk about? And I said, I did not call you. You called me. I didn't ask you any questions. You asked me three questions about homosexuality, and then you asked me why this is why I talk, what I talk about. It's because if I'm asked a question, I'm obligated to give a biblical answer. And I'm not reluctant to speak to this, because human happiness, human flourishing... Human society depends upon getting this right. But I hope what you sense is that if we're talking about the gathering storm, in this sense, in a secularizing society where belief in God is now seen as threatening to the powers that be, believing in a one true God, not a one true God, believing in the one true God, believing in the singularity of Christianity, believing in the exclusivity of the gospel, believing in the fact that Jesus saves and only Jesus saves, believing that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. That will get you in trouble these days. I said there's a big break. You go back just a couple of centuries, you could take the Bible into public argument and no one assumed that there was anything strange about that. But this modern break has happened and, and, and it's as if a, a, a wall and a castle has, has fractured. Now, I'm not speaking of this just as lament. I do think there's been great loss. But I'm not speaking of this just as lament. I'm speaking about this thinking of how to give like an intelligence briefing to an army. So consider yourselves the army. And for whatever it's worth, I'm just trying to bring kind of an intelligence briefing to say, look, once this has happened, you better realize the church is going to find itself in a more stark, more dramatic predicament every single week. Every year that goes forward, the world's going to get stranger. I also want to tell you, as I spoke about particularly in the first hour, the structures of creation are now considered to be oppressive structures themselves. So it's not just the church that's an oppressive structure, impeding human happiness. It's creation. I mean, 
just imagine how short was the time when we went from what was called gay liberation till we gone to a transgender revolution where we are told by people who say, trust the science. We're, we're now confronted by the same people saying, oh yes, that looks like a man, biologically is a man, genetically is a man, but is now a woman. And it's to be treated as a woman, or a gender non-binary, which now has an endless number of permutations. And now, and now the idea of expressive individualism being to the extent that, you know, in the second grade, teachers are being told in some districts, you know, ask your children every week their preferred pronouns. That's a lot, by the way. That's a devastating load to put on a seven-year-old. That's the society in which we now live. And we're the people who say, we don't even get to ask the question. Now, by the way, that's great assurance for us, right? Let's just confess to one another. There's great, great assurance in understanding that we do not have to define ourselves. Can I liberate you this morning? You do not have to define yourself. God defined yourself when you were created. Isn't that good news? I hope it's good news. It's one of the things that you can say to your children. You can say to your children, I will never ask your preferred pronoun. I'm going to tell you what it is. And it is because when they said it's a boy or a girl, I knew he or she, okay? Now that, in other words, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very twisted society that says we have to tell children and teenagers or anyone else for that matter, you got to figure out who you are. This has an impact on religious liberty. And, and, and again, we, we, we talk about religious liberty, and you need to recognize this is not Christians and Christian churches asking for special treatment. This is the very issue on which so much of our own national experiment was hammered out from the beginning. And, and, and it comes on the assumption that the state has certain rights, but it also has limitations, and the limitation of the state is at the soul and the spirit. The limitation of the state stops at the door of the church. And the state has no right to say what the church must preach or what it may not preach. The, the, the church has no right to say, you must be of this faith or of, of any other faith. And religious liberty, as you know, in the United States, cuts both ways. It means the state can't establish an, an official religion, but it also means that the, that the state, the government has to recognize the free exercise of religion. But I promise you, the battles are, are here and they're coming fast. Sometimes they are addressed to individual Christians, you know, such as florists and wedding photographers and others who are told, you're going to have to use your, your, your artistic expression. You're going to have to, um, you're going to have to bless and endorse same-sex marriage or, uh, or, or it's over. Uh, there, there are, are, are all kinds of other challenges that are coming. In terms of the ability of Christians to function consistent with Christian conviction, in professions, I think, I think it, it's, it's not scare tactic to tell you that the length of time in which Christians can enter certain professions, including medicine, architecture, law, and others, th th those days may be limited, precisely because some of those professions, as professions, have the right to establish you know, what they may call their, their own non-discrimination process. And by the way, one of the things to look for is what's called positive affirmation. This is something I have to work on every week in helping Christians to think through these matters. It's one thing if your company says, this is the company's policy. It's another thing if they say, in order to work here, you must positively affirm this policy. And you and I know those are going to come pretty close together in time. 
I had a young man, an executive with a Fortune 500 company, and this is a few years ago now, who contacted me and said, my position from I must celebrate, I, I must work with and, and, and understand the company's policy on this to I must put a gay pride flag on my desk during Pride Month. Positive affirmation is what's going to be called forth. In Canada, increasingly, medical schools are saying you can't gain entrance in medical school unless you will agree before admission to perform abortions because it's a waste of medical education if you're not going to uh, perform the full spectrum of medicine. So you see the way this, this vice works, but it's also directed at congregations. And uh, in many parts of the United States, it, it's, I don't want to sound alarmist here. It's not as if I'm afraid that your pastors are about to be let off in handcuffs. That's not it. In the United States, it will not take that. In the United States, the refusal to give zoning permission, the, the refusal to, uh, to acknowledge uh, tax status, the, the refusal to uh, or the declining or the withdrawal of, of, of certain access in society, it'll be enough for a lot of Christianity to cave because it's not Christianity. I mean, it's going, to be an, it's going to be enough for a lot of institutional, cultural Christianity to disappear. And we're about to find out what it's like to live as Christians in a society that thinks, that thinks Christians are on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of humanity, on the wrong side of morality, and on the wrong side of happiness. But we need to recognize that storm clouds also come inside the church. One of the things we have to note is that Christianity in, in the West, in Western civilization, has been threatened more by internal corruption and by doctrinal compromise and confusion inside than by anything from outside. Theological liberalism has done far more damage to Christ's church than oppressive dictators. And, and theological liberalism is the only explanation for why, if you go to many modern, uh, I mean, uh, big American cities, and, and, and you look and you see right where the city started, and right as the city grew, you know, right as the buildings are getting taller, the steeples are getting taller. You go to cities like New York or, or, or Washington or Boston or, for that matter, Los Angeles or, or even Kingsburg, but, but especially those big cities. And you go and you see there are these big churches, big church facilities, and in so many cases, those churches are completely lost to the gospel and have been, in some cases, for a century or more. You look at the great cathedral churches, you look at the big urban sanctuaries, you look at the tall steeple churches with the pipe organs inside and the big choir lofts, and you know what you will not find in them? The first thing you won't find in them is Scripture. The second thing you won't find in them is Gospel. The third thing you will not find them in as many people, and the last thing you certainly will not find in them is a nursery. Because theological liberalism is not only an a fatal abdication of the gospel. It is a refutation of life. It is sterility. Every generation of Christians holding to biblical authority is going to be faced by a challenge either to surrender the faith self-consciously as a whole, uh, but more likely just to uh, compromise a little bit away at a time. And, and this is something we just have to face. And so we're facing it right now. Right now, in institutional, you might say organizational evangelicalism, we're being told by many people that, uh, that if you hold to normative biblical Christianity, then uh, you're simply going to lose the generation to come. 
That's what we're told. And by the way, I'm old enough to know that evangelicals are told that about every 20 years. And you know what? They're told by the people who aren't in the churches that actually have the babies. I, I mean that not as just a generalization. It's not always true. But I may just tell you, where you find families growing up together in the faith as families, you tend to find a pretty conservative theology. Why? Because a conservative theology produces families and a conservative theology sustains families, a biblical theology. Do you recognize how difficult it is to raise children without thou shalt and thou shalt not? Can you imagine having to have a complete moral negotiation every time there's misbehavior? Well, imagine if that's true for children, how true is it for adults? Isn't it liberating to you and to me as adults that we don't have to figure out our morality or assume that it's something to be negotiated according to our self-expression or political expediency? But we actually know that what was morally right and morally wrong for Christians in the first century is what's morally right and morally wrong for Christians now. We can see Christian sinfulness. We can see Christian-dominated society's sin. But the corrective is not, let's get smarter than the early Christians. It's, let's go back to the Bible and obey Christ. So the storm clouds outside include the fact that you've got marginalization. It's going to be be harder and harder for Christians. And that's one of the reasons why you have to get as much Bible into the hearts of your children, your teenagers, your young people as possible, because they're going to go into a context which, as believing Christians, they are going to be so marginalized. And by the way, that doesn't mean people come in and say, hey, you're stupid because you're a Christian. It means that the entire society insinuates through its film, through its television, through its heroes, through its heroines, through its music, through its society. Society through everything insinuates you got to get with the program or you're just going to be lost. How much Bible, how much Bible did it take for me in uh, 1977 when I started college? You can do the math, a long time ago. But how much Bible did it take in me to be able to survive as a Christian in a co- secular college context, the, my, my first year in college? It took an awful lot. It took, a, it took an incredible amount. But, but the, the secular society that I confronted in 1977 is extremely different than the context that's going to be met on the average college or university campus by young people arriving in 2022. Or you do the math when your children are going to arrive in the same place. How much Bible is going to take in them to sustain them in terms of faithful Christianity? How much Bible is it going to take to sustain this church in faithfulness? (laughs) This is why you're so committed to expository preaching. It's because in desperation, you have figured out, according to God's plan, this is the only way Christians stay faithful, is being preached being subjected to, blessed by, infused by, and confronted with the expositional preaching of God's Word every single Lord's Day, and then reinforced through the ministry of the church in the rest of the week. The, the dangers without are real. They're sometimes out of our control. We don't get to decide what the conditions are of society by and large. Those are, those are given to us. There are issues of faithfulness and responsibility assigned to us. We are citizens. We, we do vote. Uh, we, we, there are things we can do. But the bottom line is that the dangers without are those that are sometimes just 
outside our control. The danger's within. That's where the greater responsibility lies. There'll be greater responsibility for the church, not when the church is said is called before the judgment of God to say, did you succeed in your cultural responsibility? We need to pray that we do, but we're not even sure at times exactly what that is. But did you, did you show faithfulness in the preaching of God's Word? We know exactly what that is. Did you hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints? We know exactly what that, what that is. Our first responsibility is to be faithful in our homes, in our marriages, in our churches, and then seek to be faithful in society in an increasingly more difficult time. But with the storm clouds gathering, a part of our responsibility is to say, we need to be found faithful, first of all, in the church and in the family. We pray to be found faithful in the community, and you are. We, we pray to be found faithless and unfaithful nowhere. But we know we can't be faithful in the community if we're not, first of all, faithful in the church and faithful in our marriages and in our families. I don't know exactly what the future holds. I can just tell you, you know this, things, it it would be ridiculous to say, I think all this is going to be clarified in a way that we'll think is God-honoring in short order. I don't think that. I think, as, as I spoke in the first hour, we are seeing the unraveling of a society that is now at war even with creation. So guess what? This is not going to go well, okay? This is not going to go well. And by the way, let me just tell you, I am a Christian first. I'm also a conservative, okay? But I'm a Christian conservative, so that means I don't think there is any earthly safe place. A conservative is the one who wants to conserve what is good and honorable and true as long as possible. As I say, in the spirit of the early church, sometimes the most important thing the church can do is to say, we staved off disaster another 24 hours, we'll put our children to bed, wake up in the morning, and try to do it again. It's the left and the secular world that can believe in utopias to be brought on earth. We don't believe in utopias to be brought on earth. We believe in the kingdom of Christ. The song says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. And you say, well, I am sure thankful you crossed the continent to give us such an inspiring message. <laughs> but I mean this to be inspiring. What did Jesus say? Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you realize nothing accomplished in the name of Christ is ever lost? It may even to human eyes look lost. It's not lost. I want you to look at another text with me as we close. This is from the Gospel of John. I just want us to look at two verses, and I want you to draw hope from these two verses put together. John chapter 15, verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just continue just a little bit. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Okay, let that settle in just a moment. But then turn with me to the final verse of chapter 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Notice what he says here. He doesn't say, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And he doesn't say you're going to overcome the world. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. What is the Christian responsibility? It's to be Christians in season and out of season, to be faithful to Christ, to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to do good works in the name of Christ, most importantly, to preach and teach the gospel wherever we have opportunity, to build Christian churches based upon the Word of God, preaching the gospel and build them up. Build them up strong and pass it off to the next generation because they may not be able, they may not even have the opportunity to build as you've had the opportunity to build, but maybe they have the responsibility to resist and to occupy to the glory of God. What are we called to do? We're not called to overcome the world. Isn't that good news? We're called to be faithful to Christ. And he didn't say, hey, you're going to be fine. He says, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. He says, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's actually all the assurance we need. We're not looking for rescue as we see the storm clouds gathering. We're not looking for rescue from any earthly source. We don't think we're smart enough to figure out how to handle this. We don't, we don't think if Christians just band together and show our strength, the society is going to say, no, never mind, you guys were right. What were we thinking? We do believe this. The gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. And he has, not will, has overcome the world.